and welcome to Faith Facts with Father Howard. I'm Lindsay here with Father Howard, and on today's episode, we're going to finish our discussion about adoration. So let's get started. Hey, Lindsay, you know, when you talk about adoration, uh, again, part of it, the first whole, whole first part of it was to kind of set the stage, you might say, because there is so much to it um, that without that, you know, it, it can come across that, you know, either I'm just a talking head or, you know, <laughs> it's my opinion, when really it's not. It, it, it is born out of a tremendous amount of history. That's why, you know, as, as we began the last time, we talked about the underpinnings. We talked about, you know, where the Second Council in the 1960s, you know, came from. And, and so, so much of this had been building and building at that over a period of time, you know, Eucharistic adoration, and we talked about the definitions of, of, of with some of that. Over a period of time, it has changed and morphed, you might say, um, into a, you know, what was supposed to be, you know, uh, an active participation and such to where uh, over time people became more and more drawn away from Eucharist, not because they wanted to be drawn away from it. In fact, quite the opposite. They were searching for something, but because uh, it was about politics and power and control and, and all sorts of factors that we spoke about last time that automatically formed some barriers you know, with people. Mm-hmm. I think we left off with ocular communion. Yes, ocular communion. Yeah. You know, people were hungering for the Eucharist. I mean, really, when you think about it, is it, it makes all the sense in the world. And they were somehow going to get their fill one way or the other. But what they were relegated to was being able to have a sneak peek, you might say, of the body of Christ at, at, at different types of rituals or circumstances to where they were pretty much relegated, the vast majority of people, very much relegated to what became known as ocular communion. And honestly, if you think about it, it's not a ton different from what we went through just this last year with people not being able to come to church and then us live right. streaming. So all they could do was see it. They couldn't partake. Exactly. And, and you, you hope... And many have expressed this, that it's just not the same. Mm -hmm. And they're right. It's not. It's not. It's not somehow seeing your God far off, Uh, particularly when we as people of faith believe that God is up close, Um, that that God, you know, the God of the incarnation, God who became one of us, um, seeing, you know, a host on the screen is just not the same. Or seeing a host... You know, in a tabernacle, or I should say in a monstrance, is not the same either. So we come to the, you know, this whole thing from from ocular, you know, communion. And just in, want to be, make sure that people are clear. Ocular meaning eyes, <laughs> that, that they can, you know, they can see it. Um, so that's, you know, some, sometimes the words used, uh, it was just a matter of looking at the, the Blessed Sacrament rather than, participating, receiving, or anything like that. So we go to forms of exposition. (coughs) As I mentioned, in the 13th century, uh, people were only allowed to gaze on the Eucharist for a few moments. 
Hence, the bells in church. The mm. bells had a purpose. It was not to, you know, to, it was not somehow to make the moment special. <laughs> Is that in these large churches, you had all of these side altars and prayer nooks and all of that. Is that literally the only ones who were able to see the Eucharist on more than a gaze were the clergy or the wealthy? Is that because no one could understand what was going on and you could only have ocular communion, the bells were rung basically because then people would race out into the main body of the church, see the host for a few seconds, and then go back to where they were before, saying their private prayers. Right, because they at this point, are they facing the back? They're not facing the people, so they'd be facing the back. So you really couldn't see anything until they lifted it. That is it, correct. Right? Lift it above, above your head. head. Correct. And yeah. so why would you stare at somebody mumbling because you couldn't understand a, a language? Right. And so the only thing you wanted to do was to see Jesus. Huh. And the bells let them know, here he is. Take a quick look. So it is. I always thought, here's an important part. Ring, ring, ring. Which is slightly true. Well, it is. It is. And 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 again, how hard we have, the hard time we have to let things. Again, it's it's like I cut off the ends because the pan didn't have a pan big enough. We'll get a pan big enough is that how hard it is for people to let go of the bells. When what the bells did was simply let people know who couldn't understand or get anywhere close that now Jesus was appearing for a few seconds, come and take a look because that's all you got. And, and now when we're supposed to participate fully, we have priests facing the people. We, we have the blessed sacrament there, you know, and such, is that we still want bells. Yeah, I still want bells. No, 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 no. You got to get rid of that stuff. No. So anyway, so what you have then is that um, you have, you know, the, the call to people so that they didn't miss the moment. Would they hold it up higher? Well, that's, it took about... I mean, a, sorry, longer or not really? Yes. That's where it took, um, it was in the 14, 100 years later, the 14th century, the elevation, what we have come to know as the elevation was introduced to the Mass, and one could gaze on the Eucharist a little longer for that ocular communion. Again, hence the bells, is that the elevation took longer now, mm -hmm. and in some churches, you had the wealthy inside a, a grating. So, so when you, as a poor person, you would come into the church, you couldn't even see the altar. Okay, mm -hmm. only the wealthy were able to get beyond those gates. And so the way the church was designed is that when the priest held the host up for the elevation, now you could see the host above the grates. Sure. Otherwise, you couldn't see anything. Why go to church then? Good question. But they could see Jesus above the grates. Yeah. And so the elevation came in where now the Eucharist would be held up longer so that people could see. Hence, again, the bells. You had it at the couple of different points mm -hmm. when the Eucharist would be elevated. Otherwise, 
They didn't care about those people. This was basically, you know, ringing the bells it's like Pavlov's dogs. <laughs> you know, you raced in, took a peek, you raced out. Um, it was, in so many ways, there is so much wrong with that. Because the Eucharist had become the very thing that Jesus said it should never be. It became the very thing that Jesus said it should never, ever be. And that was power, control, um, who was good, who was bad. Um, and it, it, it treated people terribly. Um, again, part of the history of our church. Um, it was about the late 14th century or the late 1300s. The Germans had a custom of exposing the Eucharist outside of Mass. Otherwise, this was not common. Uh, exposition, adoration, benediction grew um, as a practice out of many of the monasteries. And uh, it moved from the monasteries to the public. Just to give people another chance to see yes. it? Yes. Yes. Because you couldn't do it in church. Church was The church was for the rich. That's what it was for. The monasteries, many of whom had large chapels also, uh, they would allow you know, the, the, the poor to come in where they could simply come in and sit in front of the tabernacle or, as we find in Germany, to have the, uh, the Eucharist, the Blessed Sacrament, exposed for adoration and then a blessing over the people. Now, when you think of you know, a few seconds after the bells had rung, to being able to sit in the presence of the sacrament. That, I mean, talk about it's like getting a, a, a crusty old breadcrumb to a banquet. But they still weren't able to receive. <laughs> that was reserved for the clergy and for the wealthy. The other piece to this was, is that here again, because there was such a high Christology at this time, which means... The, the divinity of Christ is emphasized uh, to almost the exclusion of his humanity. Um, again, the, the, the Eucharist was something for the privileged few, and uh, it was banned, banned from the common person. You know, uh, Again, going back to when you see some of this is that it was language, uh, tabernacles, uh, backs to the people. Um, fasting had become so arduous. Uh, fasting, if for a long time, was from midnight on. That meant there was no water, no food, no medication, no nothing from midnight on. Well, again, that leaves out a whole group of people. Um, not to mention, there was a practice where the wealthy... Would, they would pay to have somebody else do the fasting and they would go receive communion. Uh, doesn't, <laughs> I don't know how that works, but okay. But they figured it out. I mean, again, that's... it's it's. <laughs> there was a loophole in the Oh, middle. yeah, there were loopholes. Well, and that's usually what happens when it becomes <laughs> an issue of power and the wealthy rather than Jesus, you know, again, being engaged by the people. Mm-hmm. So you have any number of those things. But that's what happens when the laws become so rigid. And the ones who write the laws are the ones who are in control. So 
what you have then, um, you know, and then from midnight it was three hours, and today there is we are asked to uh, fast for an hour. Medications, water are not included in that whatsoever. Um, but I can remember, you know, as I mentioned before, that when it was three hours, people would wait at the end. For, for one, they hoped that Father would preach long. <laughs> and two, they would wait at the very end of the communion line so that it would be at least exactly three hours before they received. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. It's, it, that's, that's how crazy it got. But that's how rigid the laws were. And, and thank goodness we have come from some of that. Thank goodness. Um, so that whole process worked so well that they had to make another law so that people would receive communion at least once a year. Again, the Easter duty. Mm -hmm. um, but it had worked good. People were told, you are not worthy, and so they were not worthy. And they believed they were not worthy. And so then you had to convince people, again, uh, to, to receive communion at least once a year. The um, Part of that, uh, and, and, and you had to register that you received at least once a year. Otherwise, you were not able to have a funeral in the church. You were not able to be married in the church. Oh, my gosh. And you were not going to be anointed in the church unless your name was on the register that said you made your Easter duty. Um, again, that's how rigid and how insane in many ways the laws were for this. Well, I feel like that's a hold. Like we have a holdover of that in some regards because we'll get phone calls and people are asking, oh, I, you know, I'm a member. I should be on the rolls or I paid my dues. Can I have a funeral? And we're like, mm -hmm. sure, you don't need that to have a funeral. But yeah, OK. Again, the craziness of the rules were is that if you hadn't paid your dues, you pay up that few hundred dollars you owe for the past several years. Sure, we can have your funeral. And and there are there are churches, traditions that still do that, mm -hmm. unfortunately. Um yeah, so it, it becomes, you know, we obviously we lose something with that. But back to adoration. <laughs> <laughs> but see, all of this, all of this becomes, you know, important as we, we start to look at adoration because we begin to recognize that there is so much that was a part of it that adoration, you might say, became a natural outgrowth of, of, of what it meant to be part of the Catholic tradition. Um, because we are, in some ways, we are many ways, we're very creative that way. And, and so we, we create a circumstance or a situation. Well, now we got to do something in order to address that mm -hmm. because at times we did a very good job. And so it's, it's, um, it's realizing that there is so much of this was, again, was the groundwork that adoration come, that comes out of. So back now, like I said, back to adoration is that uh, adoration, again, as we talked about it, is connected always with Eucharist. If it's not connected with Eucharist, as I mentioned previously, is that it becomes idol worship. It has to be connected to Eucharist. Now, what do you mean when you say that? Because, like, we don't... When we have adoration at the church on Tuesdays, there's not a mass before that. Precisely. It, there is not. And, and usually, you know, what would be, you might say, most appropriate mm 
would be is that there would have been a mass um, similar to what we used to do on Mondays, is that they had the adoration was was closed as of uh, Saturday morning, mm -hmm. and then there wouldn't be adoration until Monday morning, where the host would be consecrated at the Monday morning mass, mm -hmm. and then placed in the monstrance, and then adoration took place after the Mass was over. Mm -hmm. So the, the Eucharist that was in the monstrance was connected to the Mass. And, and, and that was well known, that that's, you know, the, the host that was consecrated at the Mass on Monday morning. And so adoration then took place during the week, closed down again on Saturday, mm -hmm. and then, you know, we, the cycle would start all over again. Because of the COVID, is that, uh, and, and it being my day off, is that <laughs> we didn't have a Mass then. We had to, one, limit the hours yeah. of adoration. And two, uh, we weren't able to, um, we weren't able to have uh, a Mass, you know, uh, right before. Mm -hmm. Where normally, if my, let's say my day off had been on Monday or whatever, is that we would have had a Mass prior and then we would have had adoration. So, um, it, but it's, when I say it's so it's connected is that one, that would be one way too, is that it's always to bring people back to the necessity, to the importance of gathering for Eucharist. That this body of Christ that people are praying before, that body of Christ, you might say, it came out of the community that gathered on Sunday. Mm -hmm. It came out of that community gathering where people prayed together, heard the sacred scriptures, received communion, and it is out of that that this host comes. We didn't go to a cupboard and simply pull out a big host and put it in the tabernacle. Or so, in the so as long as, you're saying as long as it's, consecrated within a mass of your congregation of the people that are eventually going to be adoring you're okay um, ideally yeah it's not i the, mean i've been to multiple adoration experiences where there's no mass and it's like you know ncyc where there's twenty thousand people or yes conference or something but my suspicion is is that that eucharist that where adoration was taken was probably from a mass where the bishop presided either previously or during sure. if there were a mass before it let's say the day before or whatever I don't, I'm not sure of the of how that works but I would suspect that that Eucharist was consecrated at that gathering sure which which again would make all the sense now obviously some of what I'm saying is ideal mm -hmm. and and that's what you would hope it would be but the idea being is that people understand we didn't go to a cupboard and simply get a big host. Gotcha. That it came out of a Eucharistic celebration. Now, sometimes that, and it's also one of the reasons why if you have a Mass, and for example, where our Adoration Chapel is, is that when the Mass is going on, because it's so close, it should be reposed and not have, you know, people kind of come to Mass mm -hmm. and then re-exposed after Mass. Mass always takes priority. 
And, and the rules make it very clear that you are not to have adoration, for example, uh, in the same building, you know, going on, unless it's far enough separated from, sure. so in, in the basement someplace or whatever. Um, so like anytime there's a funeral or something going yes. on during adoration, yes. it should be shut down. It should be shut down. Hmm. Again, so it's, yeah, we have a ways to go. Mm -hmm. Again, because people have, many folks have no understanding of that whatsoever. Why can't I have the Blessed Sacrament sitting there in front of me and watch Mass through the windows? Why would you? <laughs> Again, but see, that's the loss of a sense of the Mass being source and summit. Mm -hmm. As long as I can see Jesus, that's all I need. And it's like, no, that's not enough. You, you would starve, okay? You would starve. That would be like saying, I can just look at the banquet through the window and that's all I need. No, you need to eat. You need to eat. And it's, it's that kind of thing of, of trying to help people to grow in an appreciation of that. Mm -hmm. So when you look at, the again, the celebration of Eucharist, adoration and such, um, is that, as, as has been said, is that without, without being connected to Eucharist, it becomes nothing more than idol worship. It has to have a connection. The um, adoration is to somehow always, always bring us back to the Eucharist, um, to the sense of the real presence, um, that it is to bring us back to the need for full and conscious participation in Eucharist, that the Eucharist is not simply something we go to watch, is that we are to participate. And um, the uh, again, the, and this is stressed by the fact that um, if the Mass is taking place, adoration is to be halted and then uh, re-exposed after, after the Mass. Um, the other thing with adoration, it's not for someone just to come in and kind of say hi to Jesus, <laughs> uh, as if you know we're there as a quick visit. Um, Jesus doesn't need anything from us. God does not need anything from us. Yeah, but sometimes doesn't it feel good? People might feel good just stopping in to say hi. God does not need anything well, from us. He doesn't need it, but maybe we need it. We do need it, but it's not about dropping in and saying hi like he's a just an acquaintance. It's about coming he's supposed and to opening. to be our friend, brother. Yes, and you would not simply poke your head in and say hi and then not talk to a person. Well, if that's all I had time for. You wouldn't do that. You wouldn't do that. Um, and, and particularly if the person were God, you wouldn't do that. Again, we have, we have made it into such a, uh, we've made it into something that it was never meant to be that this is not about what God needs from us. We need God. And when you think about it, it's about going in and being able to spend some time. Uh, it's about being able to open one's heart. Um, is that we, we have made it in, in, into, uh, you know, just a, a nice acquaintance thing and saying hi and goodbye and so long. Um, you don't need to stop in at the Eucharist to do that. That, that you can do any place. Um, but that, that, again, speaks of of how we have misunderstood what adoration is. And uh, so we make it, you know, it's like um, 
you know, thinking that going to a concert is just hearing a couple of notes and now we've attended a concert. It's not. <laughs> it's the whole thing. It's the whole package. Uh, it's it's would be making saying that somehow you know I heard one line of a of a play, of a Shakespearean play, and I attended the play. Well, no, you didn't. It's, it's about the whole context. We make sometimes we make the Eucharist into something it was never meant to be. So again, going back to adoration, <laughs> always going back to adoration. Um, adoration should be an opportunity that spurs us onward. Um, even the Mass itself. Um, at the end of Mass, it's not have a nice day, although there have been those who have said that. It's misa est, go. You know, you're being sent out. Go out. Take what you have here and now go out and do something with it. Go out and serve. Go out and 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 be generous. Mis est. Go out. Is that we had a former one of our former archbishops would say that for every half hour that we spend in adoration, we should be spending two hours in a soup kitchen. Otherwise, it becomes idol worship. Adoration should spur us onward. Adoration should do something to us that has opened our hearts and saying, you need to be about this. Again, it's not about just, you know, poking your head and saying, oh, Jesus is in today. It's about being sent out. Um, it's, it's, it's about, you know, it's about the living God which enables us then to respond as a disciple. Um, we don't score points by being there, you know, um, it does nothing for God. It does everything for us. It changes us. It doesn't change God. Um, God doesn't need it. We do. Uh, but that goes for any kind of prayer. And adoration is, is something where we really recognize that you know, different types of prayer can make a huge, huge difference. Um, when it comes to adoration... As I mentioned, it's, it's tied to action and discipleship. Is Adoration is not simply about silence. And that's another um, mistaken belief that many people have. Um, that it's about being silent, you know. And, and any child or whatever would say, shh, you know, be quiet. You know, we're in presence of Jesus. Yeah, and I have a feeling that kids would have had a great time being in the presence of Jesus, <laughs> you know, when he was walking this earth. I suspect he didn't slap him around and saying, you know, keep your lips zipped uh, because I'm here, you know, son of God. Um, we, we, it's, it's one way uh, for, for that adoration can take place. Uh, we, had, we had some discussion with that, again, in a previous experience that I had, is that I had had a... Uh, a conference with the teachers and because they had talked about you know adoration and they they said but it's going to be hard having second graders third graders come in and be silent for an hour it's first of all you would never want to do that <laughs> why would you do that how could you possibly take those little ones and have them be in silence for an hour because they're afraid of Jesus oh my gosh that's not the way to do it so I, I, I decided that you know putting all of this together and saying that uh, there are lots of ways that one can 
uh, be in the presence of the Blessed Sacrament. And it all depends on the circumstances. So we had to let the people know that normally attended adoration, you know, for their hour or whatever, and saying, you're going to find sometimes that the grade school is going to come in maybe for 15 minutes, whatever they can stand. Mm -hmm. and, and so when teachers began to do that, I got all sorts of phone calls. Do you know what those kids were doing, you know, in, in the chapel for adoration? I said, what were they doing? They were singing. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Heaven forbid they were singing. <laughs> and they had, you know, they had prayers. They had uh, using songs and, and they were praying out loud. Well, for the folks, and, and I understand where it comes from, but they were scandalized. Oh, my God, what are you teaching these these children? It's like we're teaching them to pray and to be comfortable in the presence of God. That's what we're doing. And then they would be silent for about five minutes or however much that mm -hmm. they could handle. But what a marvelous way to teach. And so then I had to give a presentation to the people who would attend adoration. That adoration takes on many forms. And the documents make that very clear. Uh, the liturgical documents that speak about adoration and such that depending upon the place, the time, the circumstances, the people who are attending is that adoration can take on numerous forms, numerous uh, ways of connecting uh, people to the presence of God in their lives. Um, so adoration, when you think about it, there's a whole spectrum that, that it, <coughs> excuse me, it can cover. And so what do I mean by that? You know, when you talk about adoration, uh, it's a particular way to pray. Uh, but, for example, you can have perpetual adoration, 24-7, 365, like they had here for for a while. Anyway, before pre-COVID. But we... Well, we didn't have seven days a week. We, right. Five days a week. Correct. Um, that's one way of doing it. And, and there were people there who would come and spend their hour or however much time they could spend. It's a way to pray quietly, silently, wonderful. As you also know, we have had adoration available for the Stations of the Cross, a wonderful way to pray. And we're not doing it silently. <laughs> you can do um, the, the prayer of the church, the breviary, the, the prayer of Christians, um, is that to have night prayer or something can be done for a group. It will take on a different shape or form if it's done in a monastery or uh, a mother house to a religious order where they may have, it might be perpetual, you know, seven days a week and such, and that is part of their ministry. Um, in a parish, that a lot of times is not necessarily possible. There are some parishes, though, that have it 24-7, 365, and, and it, is, it is a wonderful part of that parish's a way of prayer and the way that they are able to uh, to help people grow in, in their faith. You might also have what is called uh, 40 hours devotion. Maybe you've heard of that. You know, that goes back a ways, probably <laughs> a little bit pre-you, you know, Lindsay. A little bit. Um, but it was 40 hours straight that there would be uh, silence, there would be, and the Blessed Sacrament, You'd start always with Mass. You'd end with Mass. Um, you would have uh, 
uh, you would have music, you would have uh, you would have uh, preaching. There might be uh, readings of scripture during this whole time. Uh, so there was all sorts of things happening during this 40 hours devotion. And usually 40 hours, you would have them for a particular season. You would have it, let's say, for a particular reason. It might be for peace. Uh, for example, uh, in Waukesha, uh, they had a 40 hours devotion for the success of, of the parishes working together. And so before in, in before Ju the July date came across came uh, came to us uh, when when it this was all official mm -hmm. is that we had a 40 hours devotion it was a marvelous time of prayer people gathering to pray to talk about unity to talk about faith to talk reading scriptures that spoke of unity um, to talk about all sorts of things uh, but it was a marvelous marvelous way for people to gather from all of the parishes and saying this is one place where we can do that and where we are able to focus on this one issue. It might be for peace. I know that there were places that had, for example, uh, 40 hours prayer time, you know, after the bombing of the Twin Towers. Um, so, and, and also, you know, during World War II and, and Vietnam War, and, and there were all of these ways, and adoration was part of it, where people would gather and pray for peace for their loved ones, for the deceased, for those who are sick. Um, so adoration, you, it can be done on retreats, uh, again, which there's just so many forms of this mm -hmm. that no one form, you know, fits everybody. And it's it's... It can be an opportunity for people to, to really look at this and to recognize the value that these different ways of prayer, the value that they have, if we but take time to really think about what we're doing. Again, I go back to my experience growing up uh, when I was talking about the Feast of Our Lady of Guadalupe. I love stories. So I would read the stories. Had, again, no clue what all of that meant. Going fast-forwarding as an adult and celebrating with the community at St. Joe's, the Latino community there. I mean, uh, the Feast of Our Lady of Guadalupe, they had, you know, the mariachi bands, they had the, the Aztec dancers, they had the, uh, you know, the roses. I mean, I've never seen so many roses <laughs> in my entire life. But talk about tapping into this unfathomable well of faith of joy, of hope, of any positive thing you could possibly think of, it all came out in this beautiful, beautiful celebration of Our Lady of Guadalupe. I could never have imagined what it was like. Even to read it, I could not have imagined what it was like until you see it come alive. And even though I couldn't speak necessarily the language in this circumstance, is that you knew this this was about faith. Um, and we had, you know, the Mass was the context of Mass, of course. It just was a wonderful celebration. One size does not fit all. And that's the same thing when it comes to adoration. One size does not fit all. There will be those people, as I mentioned in the last uh, 
podcast that we had. There are some that think it's the dumbest thing that could ever we could ever do. And I get that, okay? It's just recognizing you haven't really appreciated it maybe yet. And it doesn't have to be a person's, you know, total way of prayer. Um, there are people who have never gone to adoration, who have never prayed the rosary, who have never done a devotion, and these are holy, sacred, and wonderful people, and they will probably stand before God long before I ever do. And they will be welcomed into the kingdom. Is that? And then there are others that where these different kinds of prayer, whether it be divine mercy, whether it be the rosary, whether it be adoration, these are all beautiful ways to pray that can can touch people's hearts if if they choose to let it to do so. And it may be something that they try a few times. It may be something that they they practice on a regular basis. The, the idea being is that the point is that it opens our hearts to the Eucharist, to listen to the Word of God, to join with our brothers and sisters as one, to gather around a table to be nourished by the body and blood of Christ. It's to open us to acting, to doing, not just sitting and staring at a beautiful monstrance. <laughs> not just sitting and staring at a host either. It's about allowing who that is and who we believe in it to be. It's allowing that Jesus to touch our hearts. And yes, it might only be for a few minutes. Wonderful. If it's the few minutes that can really begin that process, you know, certainly the presence of God was there. For others, it may be a couple of hours. God bless them. But it can't just stay there. And that's sometimes the scary part that I see is that it can't simply stay there. And when you see where for folks is that that's the only way I pray. Mm, you're missing something then. And then it can become idol worship. And I know people don't like me to say that, <laughs> but the fact is is that it can. And, and, you know, if it comes between, you know, sitting there and praying in adoration and somehow disregarding your brother or sister that needs your help, you, you, you're not focusing right because... The adoration should help us to see the need here. And should again, I go back to the, one of our former archbishops that for every half hour, you should be spending two hours in a soup kitchen or two hours helping your neighbor or two hours being kind maybe to your spouse. Two hours maybe, you know, uh, um, again, helping rake lawns, building homes, is that that should spur you forward not have your butt prints on the chair. In the pew. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's a beautiful, beautiful way to pray. And it has a lot to offer. But, and, and one can see this when you begin to recognize the, uh, the different ways. And like I said, it can be in a church. It can be in a chapel. It could be in a park. It could be in any number of places. Being able to pray in adoration 
you know, no matter where, should help us to be able to pray and to see the presence of God in other ways in the world in which we live. Adoration, you know, is a catalyst. It should be a catalyst of so much more rather than the end in and of itself. That still, still has to deal with God. It's not about sitting someplace and just staring at something. Um, get, it, it's, it's like anything. Um, it can become empty or it can lead us and open doors to lead us through doors we have yet even to imagine. Mm. So, so uh, just because I'm curious and like history, when did it change that people could finally take communion again? Well, it, it, let's see. When people could finally, that was actually, that was in the 1800s. Oh, wow. Where what they realized was the fact that, again, we, we people weren't receiving communion. Um, it's, it's like anything else. When you are told that you, you do not belong there, is that uh, you're going to stay away. And so it just became automatic that you didn't go. So mm -hmm. it was actually in the scope of things not that long no, ago. Not long. And you begin then to see why the rules were made. But before the Second Council, and, and maybe sometimes, is that Pope John uh, the 23rd didn't wake up one morning and saying, ooh, ooh, let's have a council. <laughs> is that for a good 50 years before, there had been writings and rumblings and, and saying, you know, we need to help people get back to the Eucharist. We need to help them understand that this is not somehow Father's show or the Pope's show. We need to. And so this things have been kind of um, going through the mill for a goodly number of years. But before that is that they needed to make a rule saying we got to get back at least once a year. Yeah. At least once a year we have to get people back to the Eucharist. I'm surprised that the prayer of adoration didn't just kind of go away after people were allowed to have the Eucharist again. Interesting. Yes, in, in a sense, that's very true. However, going back to the little story about the cutting off the ham is that many times it's because we don't know why we were doing what we were doing. So if there is, a, if there is this huge disconnect between Eucharist and my really being able to see Jesus, is that it's, they're going to continue. What, what the Second Council did, because there was a whole part there at the place and the time where adoration was probably much more important than Mass ever was. But that's because people could experience it. That's why, in many ways, Jesus and God had become so distant, had become so disconnected. Mm -hmm. That's why you have the you know, the pieties of the saints and Mary, is that there is no question, you know, when you look at the history of the church, that for a long time, Mary became way more important than Jesus ever was. And the saints became way more important because God was way out there. So if you can't reach God and you can't reach Jesus, who can you reach? Who is at least, you know like you as much as anyone might be able to, is that Jesus is divine. So he's not like us. And you had heresies that worked with all of that. So you go to Mary. And because she's at least one you can 
have a sense that is connected. Mm-hmm. But if you can't even go to Mary, and there were those who got, so now you go to the saints because they were real schleps like we are. <laughs> you know, some were really good, some were really bad, but there was a conversion someplace in the middle of it all. They were schleps just like us. <laughs> and so sure. they were ones that, that, you know, we were reassured that they made it. So God's way out there, Jesus's way out there, Mary is not quite so far out there. Mm -hmm. But you know, she's still far enough where you can't relate to her. So you go to somebody that was just like you. So it's not unusual in a way when you have such a disconnect. This was about as close, remember, as people were going to get. They might receive communion once, probably with great trepidation. And remember, you know, for many of them, to even be able to to do that for 12 hours. You know, in the, in the history, line of history, the three-hour thing wasn't that long ago either. Mm-hmm. You know, so when you think about that for 12 hours, you were probably going to struggle doing that just even once in your life. Well, how do you even get close then? Adoration. And I suppose if, you know, it really was recently when people started going back for communion, you're talking generations and generations of people doing adoration. So, yeah, you'd kind of forget yep. how it started. It's like, why do you cut the ends off the ham? Interesting. Didn't have a pan big enough. <laughs> you know? Uh, and you, you look at that and saying, you know, well, because they didn't know where it came from, that's just how we do it, mm-hmm. Father. Is that going back and somebody asks the question. You know, even when you think about the Second Vatican Council. Why do we ring the bells? Well, this is why. Well, then we don't need them anymore. <laughs> why did you have maniples, you know, and what they used to call maniples? It was a cloth that went over your arm. Because in the early days, they would bring up fruit and animals and stuff during the offertory. So the priest needed a cloth to wipe his hands on after he handled fruit and animals, and Lord knows what else, mm-hmm. he had to wipe his hands off. Is that we don't need that anymore? It's, it's letting go of some of those things that if you are fully engaged, you know, why did they print so many things? Because you couldn't understand the language. <laughs> you shouldn't need that anymore if you are going to participate fully and consciously. So adoration, in some ways, was a victim of its own history. Yeah. And, and not only its history, but the history of the church. And, and, and the good job we did of basically letting people know they were not, <laughs> they were not worthy of receiving communion, and nor should they even so think about it. So when you go to com- or adoration, that's what you should think of. This, our history is we're not good enough. <laughs> well, yeah, and, that, that, and unfortunately, that's too often what people think. You know, even now today, you know, people, you know, this idea that, and, and, and people have preferences or whatever, but you were told no person should ever, ever touch the host. Never. Now, when that is beat into your head since you were a child, um, you, you know, and not only that, I remember uh, when I received First Communion, um, the, you know, the host got stuck on the roof of my mouth. Sure. It happens. Yeah. Well, God forbid that I 
was going to take my finger and get that off. Mm -hmm. So here I am trying to do that with my tongue. Yeah. And Sister Petra, who was our second grade teacher, hits me up the side of the head or the back of the head and says, swallow it. <laughs> it's stuck to the roof of my mouth. We were also taught that you didn't chew the host. Because if you did, you were crushing Jesus' bones and your mouth was going to be full of blood. <gasps> what? So when you're taught those things from little on... <sighs> There, I mean, it creates this sense of terror. Right? That's just scary. And it, it is. And so thank God we don't teach these things. But those are things that were taught. So And taught, as you mentioned, uh, Lindsay, for generations. Mm -hmm. Is that it became, again, a victim of its own history and disconnect. There was a huge disconnect between Eucharist, the Mass, and, and adoration. Mm -hmm. What the Second Council tried to do was to put it in a healthier framework. Sure. And sometimes people thought that you're trying to destroy it. Oh, no, we're not trying to destroy anything. We're trying to put it in the appropriate framework that was meant from the beginning. Mm -hmm. And not the aberrations that oftentimes took place, um, that, that took place because people had lost a sense of why we do what we do. Wow. It's a wonderful experience and way to pray. Yeah. It's not for everyone, but it certainly is. Uh, it, it can touch people's hearts and it can motivate them to do all sorts of wonderful, wonderful things. Well, that certainly leaves us with a lot to think about. Indeed. I think, I think we're going to leave it there for this week. Um, if you want to reach out to us, holyangelswb at gmail.com. Send us a note. Say hi. If you have a suggestion, whatever. We'd love to hear from you. Otherwise... Hope you enjoyed that and we will see you next time.